Today's reading is Luke 9, verses 51 through 62. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked the Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one puts a hand to the plow and looks back, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. King's Quest students, first through fifth grade, you can head to the lobby and find your teachers. The rest of you may be seated. Hi, Grace. My name's Daniel Long. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege of being able to share with you God's word. Now, one of the things that I, I always have an existential crisis when I'm preparing a sermon. Uh, well, I'm actually prone to existential crises in general. Uh, so I could, honestly, that's one of my spiritual gifts, making an existential crisis out about, about everything. But, because um, the question is always, okay, like what, what is this that we're actually doing? What am I actually doing? Um, and what then does it feel like from you about what I'm actually doing. Uh, because I sometimes fear that what it feels like is um, being at a Little League sports game. Now, I'm a part of the cult of Little League sports, and my kids are, uh, and one of the things that happens is these kids are playing sports, and they're doing a great job, and parents are constantly trying to remind their kids of the things they're supposed to be doing. Things like, hey, don't forget you got to catch that ball, or just throw strikes, or, you know, just swing the bat. All you have to do is get a hit. Just put the ball in play. As if these kids are wondering, standing around thinking, I think I'm probably going to just throw a ball right now. That's what I want to do. Or what I hope I'm going to do is just strike out. What I would really imagine in the heroic visions of my life is that I would just, in this game-winning situation, just walk away from the field and go sit on the bench. Now, what I wonder about is sometimes you could be thinking, I mean, I'm I'm just, I'm the one doing this. I'm living. I'm trying my best. And here's a person who has all of his time to be able to go through scripture and get it right and then give to you all all the things that you're supposed to do better and more faithfully and uh, more efficiently. 
Well, my hope is that that is not what any of this preaching is at Grace. What I hope preaching is at Grace, and what I hope to do is to remind you that you actually have no ability in and of yourself to do anything that you would like to do. Now, I would hope that what I point you to is your own inability to be faithful, spiritually mature, and, and live life with Jesus on your own strength. Because the truth is, is we cannot do it apart from the grace of Jesus Christ. Now, the truth of the spiritual life is that it is actually an impossible thing to do in and of myself because all within me wants to resist the very thing I'm called to do. I know what's true, and I know what's good, and I know what the beautiful life should be, and I know that I'm supposed to want it. And yet, it feels so impossible to desire it, to be faithful to it, to be a person who gives oneself entirely over to Jesus. So what I want to do is set the stage and say, I am right there with you. We are in this together, wanting so desperately to follow after this Jesus, but also being so aware of how we mess it up all the time. But then somehow, in and all of that, God says to us, my grace is sufficient. So my hope is as we listen to God's word, that what you don't walk away with is a list of all of the things you know you should do but fail to do, but rather some promise that Jesus' way is the best way that his invitation is for you and that Jesus is at work in our hearts if we can fully surrender to him to shape us into the people who might continue to move in that direction. So that's my prayer, that's my hope. So let's pray together and then listen to the good news and the words that God might have for us. Can you open your hands so that we can be people who want to receive? God, you are the one who speaks, you are the one who promises that you are with us. You are the one who says that your perfect love somehow, mysteriously, casts out the fear that we live with all the time. God, you are the one who says to follow you. And you are the one who, when we attempt to do so and then fail to do so, somehow remain near and move us and carry us or pull us by the hand in the direction where you want us to go. Thank you for your gentleness. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. It's in the name of Jesus. We know these things are true. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Jared. I love that. Amen. Yes. Uh, if you can open up your Bibles to uh, page 868, we're going to look at uh, Luke chapter 9. We're still in this long journey and through the gospel of Luke. And actually, it shifts in this passage because it shifts in geographical location or at least where Jesus is going to be moving. And in this morning, we're going to be looking at the kingdom of God and the invitation to follow within the way of this kingdom, but also the costs that are involved. 
And we're going to look at the way that the kingdom of God alters our assumptions. We're going to look at the, the way the kingdom of God reimagines rest. We're going to look at the way the kingdom of God reorients or readjusts our priorities and then reconstructs our identity. But I want to start in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. So when the days drew near for, for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for his arrival. But they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. So real quick, this is important because what Luke is doing is reminding us that this narrative is shifting. We are just coming out of this ministry that Jesus had in the, in the area of Galilee, and now Jesus' singular focus is going to be in the way of Jerusalem. And if you know the story, or even if you don't, I'll tell you, the story headed toward Jerusalem is the story of being headed toward the cross, toward death and suffering at the hands of the religious authorities and the Roman government. So that Jesus, his setting his face toward Jerusalem, changes this narrative of where it's headed, and we know where it's headed. And he comes upon this village of the Samaritans, and he sends messengers ahead. But in verse 53, it says, they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Verse 54, when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord... Do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and he rebuked them. Then they went on to another village. Okay, so Jesus sends messengers to this village of the Samaritans to let them know that he's coming through. We're told that the Samaritan village did not accept this Jesus. Now, there might be many reasons why, but it's probably because of these theological differences. So the, Samaritan, the Samaritans believed that Jerusalem wasn't the center of the Jewish religious identity. What they imagined, that was to be Mount Gerizim. And this has been a long history of this difference of how these people worship, and it's created feuds and fights, and they've become enemies. And so it makes sense that they didn't receive Jesus because his face is set toward what? Jerusalem. But then I find it striking because the disciples' impulse is, well, I mean, do you want us just to command fire on this village and just consume them, get rid of them? Now, what's fascinating about this is that they're also probably inspired by knowing their Old Testament. I mean, if you remember a little bit before this, there was the transfiguration where Jesus is revealed to be among some prophets, now, Jesus himself, in the way of the prophet, in this way, in the prophet Elijah, is reminiscent of this story when Elijah sent messengers in 2 Kings to this king named Ahaziah, and Ahaziah rejected them. And so then what did Elijah do? Called fire upon heaven to consume them. And it happened. So perhaps these disciples imagined that this was the type of prophet that Jesus, in fact, was. But then we're told, no, he rebukes them. We don't know how or what he said, but if this is like the ways that Jesus has rebuked storms or the ways that Jesus has rebuked uh, demons, there's this sense in which he just says, stop. That is not the way. So Jesus rebukes the disciples, and then they go on to another village, 
Now, in this way, the kingdom of God alters our assumptions and the assumptions of the disciples because in their imagination, what they imagine is this kingdom comes by way of force, of manipulation, of coercion, ultimately power. Well, if these people reject this Jesus, then of course, the only possible reaction would be consuming them by fire. But Jesus rebukes them. His face is set toward Jerusalem. He is moving toward the cross. Now, the kingdom of God is one that alters our assumptions because it turns the world upside down in terms of what power actually is. The kingdom of God is going to come small, and it's going to change everything. And the kingdom of God refers to this way in which Jesus is is actually at the center of king. And when that is happening, the world is as it should be. But it does not come by way of force or coercion. It is not coming in the way that the Roman Empire comes. His face is set toward Jerusalem, toward the cross. It comes by way of suffering and death and a man laying down his life for his friends. So the kingdom of God alters our assumptions. It is altering the assumptions of these disciples. Now this is also instructive, and here's why, because there's a danger of being close to Jesus. And one of the dangers of being close to Jesus is that you think, I think, we know how it all works. And we think we know what is supposed to happen to those for whom are not close to Jesus. We think that they are to then just be consumed by fire. We think, it's, we think they are to be completely and utterly rejected. Jesus offers a rebuke to that way of thinking. The kingdom of God alters assumptions. Then Jesus continues. And as they were going along, verse 57, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But then he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Like three times in these five verses, there's this sense in which people are wanting to follow Jesus. And then three times he offers responses that remind them that the cost is pretty high. The cost of following Jesus is pretty high. And the first way that the kingdom of God and the way of Jesus uh, is is different than what we imagine is that it reimagines what rest is. See, it's easy to think that Jesus, as we look at this, is just wanting to be a homewrecker. Okay, so I want to follow you. Well, there's no, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I want to follow you, but I need to bury my father. No, just let the dead bury their own dead. I want to, fo- I want to follow you, but I need to go home first. No, if you, look, if you turn your back, there's, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. So at first glance, it can seem like, wow, Jesus just doesn't um, like families. Uh, 
But Jesus is using these, these ideas of home and of family and of like nomadic lifestyle to suggest that the cost of following Jesus, the cost of moving toward the kingdom of God is significantly high. And it requires all of us. So when Jesus says to this man, first person who wants to follow him, that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, what he's suggesting is that this idea of what it means to have a home and then therefore what it means to rest is being reimagined and redefined. And we know this actually because we see in Matthew 11 when Jesus says, To us, to all of us, the disciples, come to me, all who are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Now, does that mean that Jesus requires nothing? No. Continues. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So to follow Jesus is not to be without burden or to be without yoke. It's just to be with the right burden and the right yoke. So if we are then asked, if the kingdom of God is asking us to reimagine what rest is, then it's asking us to reimagine the ways in which we think we are to understand our security and our comfort. It's not to know where you're going to sleep. It's not to know how you're going to get rest. It's to believe that actually being with Jesus in his way is the most restful thing you can do. Because that's right. Because how many times are we living lives exhausted and overwhelmed by trying to secure a future that we will not have to worry about? We are constantly trying to secure a future that we will not have to worry about. We want to have a place to lay our head. We want to have a place for our kids to lay their heads. We want to imagine a future where we don't have to be concerned And it turns out that that could be a pretty exhausting, pretty toilsome way of living. But the kingdom of God asks us to reimagine rest as following in the way of Jesus and trusting that he will be the one that sustains. But even more, what's remarkable is that it's not that Jesus didn't have any place to sleep. It's that he actually required the hospitality of others to be able to rest. Because Jesus needed to be invited in to homes. Jesus needed to be invited in to eat. So in a, in a real way, Jesus himself was dependent on the hospitality of others. So we, to, for the kingdom of God to ask us to reimagine rest is to suggest that to live a restful life is to be, a, to be dependent on Jesus and on his people. But how many times do we exhaust ourselves trying to live a life and construct a life where we don't need anybody else? But that is not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is one where we need the way of Jesus and the help and the voices and the lives of others. Jesus keeps going. He says to a person, 59, follow me, 
Then that person said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And then Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So culturally, religiously, Jewish people, there was an expectation in their families to do certain things. Actually, it was required by Mosaic law to honor your father and mother. One of the ways that, we would, that they would honor their fathers is by going through these burial customs that could actually last as long as a year. In one sense, they would actually, they would have the, the man or father or person buried and then once the body decomposed, they would actually take the bones and then bury them in a place where, where those bones would be for a long period of time. That process can take up to a year. So this person who wants to follow Jesus but wants to go first bury their father isn't necessarily talking about something that's going to take place in like the next day or two. It could be a long process. But even still, the point remains. What Jesus is attempting to say is, look, I am the one who is going to be defining both what you're expected to be as a person, what you're expected to be culturally, and what you're expected to be religiously. You're, you're right now be held to the Mosaic law and, the, and what it means to, to honor your father and mother. You're beheld to this law that says you were supposed to do these things. But Jesus is wanting to reconstruct those things. Because a person's identity was wrapped up in this. The type of son they were or daughter they were, the type of, of religious follower they were, all of this is being dismantled in these words where Jesus says, no, let the dead bury their own dead. This isn't simply saying, you don't worry about your dead parent. No, this is saying, do not worry about all of the things that gave your life meaning religiously, culturally, spiritually, because I'm going to define those terms from now on. So whatever your identity, whatever my identity, whatever the identity of these peoples are wrapped up in, Jesus is saying the kingdom of, of God is going to reconstruct that. Which makes me think of this question, is what for you would be the thing, if it was ripped away, taken away, tomorrow would make you question who you are? If something in your life was taken from you right now, tomorrow, very quickly, what would be the thing that would completely upend your life and your understanding of yourself? And that's the thing Jesus is after. That's the thing Jesus wants. Could be a job, could be your family, it could be your kids and what you want for them. It could be something like a good marriage. It could be something like a really good spiritual life. It could be whatever you have in your life that you construct your identity around of who you think you are and what it requires for you to be you. Jesus wants to reconstruct that. He wants to remove that and he wants to place himself in that and he wants to then say, no, this is what is to give your life meaning. And the only way that you can have the other things that you want and for them to give you what you want from them is to have me at the center. So that all of those other things that are often at the center won't disappoint because they often do. And they will because they are not enough. 
There is no one thing or one person that can possibly be everything you want and need. The one who says that they can be is the person Jesus Christ. That is the person, that is the thing that is to be in the center of our life that we construct our identity around. And it will change and define everything. Now there's this show um, called The Big Door Prize. uh, And I'm actually on the fence of whether or not it's a good show. Uh, But the premise is amazing. So here's the premise. The premise is this. Somehow mysteriously in this random city, in random America, comes this machine. It's called the Morpho Machine. And if you put your handprints in this machine and you give them your social security number, and you answer a few questions, then what it will give you in return is a little card that will tell you what you are supposed to be. So there's this one man, it's, he's, he's the, the main protagonist of the show, and he likes to whistle and he's a teacher. That's important because what he gets on his card is whistler teacher. But other people who are trying to just figure out who they are will be like, oh, queen or royalty or lover. Somebody will get hero or liar. Now, what's really fascinating about this show is that it it tries to explore what would happen to a person or to a group of people if they were told who they were and they actually lived as if that was true. Like if somebody got, a, got, got the card royalty, how would that person's life change if they believed they were to live as if they were royalty? If somebody got the word hero, what would they begin to do if they truly believed that's who they were? What's fascinating about that premise is that in the Christian life, that is precisely how we're called to live. We're given names like son of God, daughter of God, child of God. We're given names like saved. We're given names like disciple. And we are told to believe that those are true names. Now imagine what would happen to a place, to a people, to a person, if they lived as if that name were true? What might happen if our identity was reconstructed around Jesus and the kingdom he's inaugurating? And what would happen if we lived as if that was in fact true? What would happen to your relationships? What would happen to your relationship to your job to your children, what would happen to your relationship to yourself, to your past, to your future? What might happen if our identity was truly reconstructed around Jesus and the kingdom that he's bringing? Jesus continues. Another, he said, I will follow you, Lord. This is another person talking to Jesus. It's verse 61. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. And then Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. 
See, the kingdom of God also reorders priorities. Because it turns out to be human is to be a person who, ha- who likes to have one foot in and one foot out. I mean, I speak for my generation. One of the things my generations love is we love to say maybe. Hey, are you free Friday night? I'll get back to you. Or maybe, or possibly, or we'll have to see. But that's also what it's like to be human, especially when we're invited to follow Jesus in the way of his kingdom. We like to have one foot in, one foot out. We like to be sort of toward the kingdom of God, but we like to look back just to be sure. But Jesus says that's, that no, if you do that, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. Why? Because it requires every single part of you. It requires that it's your main priority. It requires that you have a singular focus like Jesus is set toward Jerusalem, that it would be with him, toward him, ultimately toward the cross. And this is why it's significant. We cannot live lives half in, half out if the way with Jesus is a way toward the cross. Because it turns out it's pretty impossible when you're faced with your life or the life of others to choose a life that is for the sake of others. It just feels really hard. This is why Jesus says things like, you cannot serve two masters. This is why Jesus says, leave your nets behind and come follow me. This is why Jesus says, do not turn around and look at home Because to have your imagination there makes it impossible to move toward where Jesus is calling us. And so the kingdom of God is asking us to have our priorities reordered, to remember what the main thing is and to keep the main thing the main thing. Because if it's not, it's impossible to love your enemies. It's impossible not just to forgive seven times, but to forgive 70 times seven. It's impossible to not look at others with judgment and to look at the log in my own eye before I look at the splinter in yours. It's an impossible way to live. It's impossible to take up our cross and to lay down our lives for our friends. It feels impossible to wash the feet of others if I have one foot in, one foot out. Because the path of least resistance is the path that I will choose almost 99% of the time. Unless I truly believe that the Jesus way and the kingdom way are the best way. If I don't believe that, I will choose what's easiest every time. And so will you. And that's the thing, these, 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 these ways of being that we want to be, the way of following Jesus, pursuing the kingdom of God, does not happen by accident. It happens by a life that's oriented in the direction of Jesus, recognizing that we need the invitation of Jesus, the strength of Jesus, the guidance of Jesus, to be able to follow where he's calling us. And so this is the final word I want to leave with us, with you. Surrender. 
This is my, if, if, if this, there was an application to this sermon, this is it. Surrender. How do we surrender? How do we give up our ideas of rest, our constructions of our, of our identity, our assumptions, our priorities? How do we give these things up? How do we be people who surrender? I think it's a long obedience in the same direction. And I think it takes a lifetime. And I think you know, because I've trusted the Spirit is at work speaking to you, you know where to start. One of the things that feels very deficient as a person who's preaching is to know, and it's an impossible task, to know what Jesus is calling each of you to do. I can't know that. But I trust so deeply that you do. I bet this week, at some point, something has come to mind. Maybe in a moment of quiet, maybe in a conversation with others, where you thought, huh, maybe that's something I need to give up or think differently about or let go of. Why do I believe that the Spirit speaks in that way? Because God promises to. So this idea of surrender is to open oneself to this idea that Jesus is calling you to something. To one thing. Right now. After this. Or maybe it's a text. I actually don't know what it is. Here's a quote from Ruth Burroughs who's a Carmelite who has incredible things to say about the spiritual life. And one of the things that makes it so hard, her words so difficult, is that you can tell she believes them. She says this, ultimately we're faced with a choice. Are we going to trust God and leave ourselves? Are we going to make that blind leap in the dark which relies on the divine arms being there to catch us? Are we prepared to sacrifice our own self-satisfaction, our own inner assurances, our own inner assurances? Oh my goodness. Assurances. Thank you. I'm going to start again because that was weird. Ultimately, we are faced with a choice. Are we going to trust God and leave ourselves? Are we going to make that blind leap in the dark which relies on the divine arms being there to catch us? Are we prepared to sacrifice our own self-satisfaction, our own inner assurances, and be willing for God to have what he wants regardless of what we want? What's really fascinating about the context of this is she's actually describing how we imagine our spiritual life should be. She's actually not, in, this con in the context of this quote, not talking about these lives that we live for other things, right? It's easy to, to think like, oh, I'm just pursuing um, my identity in, in, in work, and I, what I really need to give up is what work gives me. What she's actually calling to task are believers and people who really seek spiritual maturity, putting our trust in whatever spiritual effects we think we should have from our own spiritual life. 
So whatever assumptions that you think you should have about what you need to be spiritually, that is precisely what Ruth Burroughs here in the context of this quote is asking you to give up. Because it turns out we do a lot of Christian things to try and make ourselves feel assured before God. And part of what it means to to surrender and to give up is to give up what you imagine your spiritual life should give you. Like, do you love Jesus, period, question mark, or do you love what you get from loving Jesus? Do you notice the difference? Do I love my wife, question mark, end of sentence, or do I love my wife because of what I get, because of what she gives me? And you can do that all across the board. But what Jesus is asking us is to love him and to, be, to believe that we can surrender to the love that he has for us, end of story. That's the pursuit of the spiritual life. Anything we do, anything we practice is to help aid in that pursuit, to be a person who surrenders ultimately to the idea that perfect love casts out fear. That is what we're called to do. She has a question later on that says, well, she actually has a, it's posing the question, is it possible that we would wager everything on God's goodness? Do we live lives in such a way that it wagers every single possible thing on God's goodness? Living a life completely sold out and believing in the idea that I am a child of God, that God loves me, that God is for me, end of story. What would it look like to live that type of life? Surrender. Where does it start? I think you know. And again, I'll tell you a story from my week. I was talking with friends about these sorts of things. My friend asked me, as I was describing a relationship that I have to some people in my life, he said, he asked me very plainly, have you forgiven them? I couldn't say yes. And then, oh, maybe, maybe that's my thing right now to learn and figure out how to surrender. And then what would it look like to wage my forgiveness on God's goodness? Like to actually believe that is in fact true. So simply, what are you being asked to surrender? What are you being asked to surrender? Jesus, following you is hard. And I think that's partly why it's, it's true. You call us to things that seem so impossible. Your invitation is unconditional. Your love is unfathomable. Your arms are open. And I want, I want to be a person who is able to surrender
to your invitation, to your promise of love, to your gentleness. I want us to be a church who does that. So God, I ask whatever it is you're called, whatever thing you might be calling each of us in different ways to surrender, may we May we believe that it is the best way. May we believe that that you are there to catch us as we take this leap in the dark. That you are a God whose goodness is worth wagering our entire life upon. And show us and reveal to us all the ways that we want to resist and go another way. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, the perfect practice this morning to embody this idea of surrender because to come to the table, to come to communion, is to surrender the fact that you have truly nothing to give but everything to receive. Christ's body, Christ's blood, given for you so that you and I might experience true life. And what do you bring to the table? You can't bring anything because then you won't have the hands available to be able to receive. And so come open-handed. That's what Jesus is asking. Come open-handed. Let go of all the things you think you need to bring and do and give. And let Jesus in his grace says, no, come, follow me. Come, my body, my blood, it is for you. It's given for you. This is the practice that we get to embody this morning together. And then you get to see your brothers and sisters making the same claim that they too have nothing that they can bring, but everything to receive. And then all of a sudden together we are people who are given the love of Jesus over and over and over again, the life of Christ within us to shape and form us into his likeness. I mean, amen, that we get to receive that. So if you want to stand, I'm going to call the servers forward. You'll be released by Rose. You'll get bread and you'll get wine or juice. You can take it back to your seat. And then Amy is going to come and lead us in the partaking